This is an Australian Museum podcast. Welcome to Amplify, a regular conversation featuring Australian Museum Director and CEO Kim McKay, speaking to researchers, scientists and other fascinating people from behind the scenes at the Australian Museum. Welcome to Amplify. I'm Kim McKay, the Director and CEO at the Australian Museum. And in this series of podcasts, I get to talk to some of our fantastic scientists and collection managers and researchers here at the Australian Museum. We're the first museum in the nation. Next year, we turn 190 years old. And someone who's been at the museum for almost that length of time, now he's laughing at me, is Mark McGruther. Mark manages our fish collection, and it's the most extraordinary collection in Australia. We've got more than 1.8 million fish in jars and tanks at the Australian Museum and they're studied all the time. Mark McGruther, welcome to Amplify. Thank you very much, Kim. Now, how long have you been here? Oh, the first question's the killer, isn't it? Yeah. Over three decades, I've been here about 35 years. You must love fish. I do, and I love the museum. It's a great place to work. As you know, 35 years is a long, long time and I've loved most of it. It's a complete generation, actually. It is, actually. In fact, the changes that I've seen during that that time has been amazing. What's the same, of course, is still the passion, the love for the place and the commitment and the the drive to understand what animals we're working on. But what has changed is, well, perhaps I should say when I first came here, there were no computers and there was a tea lady. (laughs) The days of the tea lady, long gone. But we've got a lovely new cafe on the rooftop, so that's something. That makes up for it. It does indeed. So you talked about that drive and passion that exists here at the museum, and it is extraordinary. Where did your drive and passion for fish come from? Well, I've always been interested in the marine, in wildlife in general, and of course, you know, watching Jacques Cousteau and all those programs on television. Um, I did a zoology degree, and I wasn't, it wasn't so much fish that fascinated me initially, it was just animals in general, I was, but I was always attracted to the marine. And my degree, I actually worked on crustaceans, but then the fickled finger of fate pointed in the direction of fish, and I took it up and picked up the ball and ran with it. And I've loved it ever since. And I bet you love saying to people, I'm an ichthyologist. I'm an ichthyologist and I'm okay. (laughs) (laughs) I swim all night and I swim all day. Yeah, what a great, what a great word, ichthyology. I love it. Most people have trouble spelling it though. Yeah, I do. Well, well, I've worked it out. (laughs) Well done. I know what you are now. One of the great things, Mark, about the work you do is you deal with very, very little fish, very tiny fish, mm-hmm. to very large fish, sharks, yep. goblin sharks mm-hmm. particularly. Mm-hmm. So you've got this huge array. So when you've got 1.8 million subjects to look after, why are they so important? Oh, what a challenging question. We actually are documenting Australia's, well, fish fauna. Uh, the museum, of course, contains more than just fishes, mm. but, and you notice I use the word fish, fishes for more than one species. Yes. People are going to complain about that, but look it up. Go to the website, refer to the website. That's right. It is fishes, the plural. For more than one species, it's fishes, yeah. Anyway, it's really important because we're documenting what occurs in our country. Without documentation, how can you manage? And we have nearly 5,000 species recorded from Australia and there's on average about one discovered every week so our fauna is still really growing. I mean given that the oceans have hardly been explored really there's going to be a lot more discoveries in our marine environment so it is an extraordinary uh, place to be working within the museum but apart from the sheer volume 
and the number of species. We also hold a fish type collection here at the museum. Can you explain to us what that means? Sure. Fish types, well, types of any kind, are the name-bearing specimens. When a scientist describes a new species of fish or bird or mammal or whatever, they have to allocate specimens in a museum collection somewhere and describe the new species in a paper based on those specimens. And those specimens, which have a registration number and are listed specifically by number in that paper, become the type specimens. And I won't go into it. There's a whole heap of different types of types. Again, refer to the website. But the Australian Museum collection is the fourth largest type collection of fishes in the world. We contain, it contains over 13,000 specimens and is uh, beaten in size only by the Smithsonian, the Museum in London, the Natural History Museum and the Museum in Paris, which just goes to show how big and how large and how important our type collection is. And we, of course, have many, many types from Australia. Uh, it's in fact law now that if a <coughs> species is described, the types have to be some of the types have to be lodged in Australia and we have people all over the world describing species of fishes from Australian waters because we don't have enough ichthyologists, there's that word again, in Australia on staff, not only here at the museum but around the country. And so people from lots of different countries, Japan, the US, the UK, Spain, wherever, are describing species from Australian waters. In fact, I think the last fish species identified in Sydney Harbour was found at Chowder Bay and it of course is in our collection. I think he was a Japanese researcher, correct? Yes, in fact the in 2004 the last newly described species from the harbour with the wonderful name of Scorpionopsis inspiratus. Inspiratus was named because the fellow was so surprised to find it in Sydney Harbour. The reason being it's a tropical genus and in fact it's found this particular species found six eight hundred kilometers south of its nearest relative further up north so yeah that was found at chowder bay in 2004 sydney harbour is well i like to describe it as a marine jewel it really is extraordinary there's nearly 600 species recorded from the harbour and when you compare that with the mediterranean it's got more species than the mediterranean more species than all of northwestern europe combined so, yeah, Sydney Harbour, we're sitting on a, well, a fish mine. <laughs> and we're seeing now more tropical fish come down to Sydney Harbour. So Nemo is here, uh, yep. swimming down the coastline, mm-hmm. and now surviving our winter mm-hmm. because the waters have warmed. Yeah. So while we're seeing the impact of coral bleaching up on the Great Barrier Reef, we're also seeing the impact of some tropical fish moving south and, in fact, inhabiting Sydney Harbour for the first time. That's correct. That's been known for a long, long time that tropicals quite often come south. On If you saw Finding Nemo, the East Australian current, they ride the EAC down the coast. And quite often it's very common for tropical fish juveniles to end up down here and way south on southern New South Wales. What is less common is for them to be able to overwinter because what happens, of course, the water gets colder, the fish slow down, they get gobbled up by larger fish. Nowadays, we're finding more tropical fishes overwintering and growing to uh, larger sizes. In fact, not just small fish. We're, we're getting reports of all sorts of weird fish. I mean, really full-on tropical fish occurring in New South Wales waters. It's, it's extraordinary. Now, when an extraordinary fish is found along the New South Wales coastline, you're often the first port of call, aren't you, to get that call. People send you a picture, they phone you up and say, can you help us identify this fish and do you want it? And uh, I see you're always putting out calls to say, can we transport this fish back here quickly because there are some extraordinary species. What's the most extraordinary species that you've been called about? Oh, my goodness. Um, 
Oh, that's tough. There's a whole range of them, but uh, certainly a little while back we got a type of parrotfish that's a full-on coral reef chomping fish found off Foster, uh, which is quite extraordinary. Uh, that was caught by a spear fisherman. He thought it was a snapper, and then he shot it and went, what the heck is this? And he was blown out of the water. But we're also seeing reports of uh, blue groper. Now, blue groper is the New South Wales state fish mm. emblem uh, being found now regularly in Tasmania. Um, and in the 1920s, there were some reports of this fish, in, this species in Tasmanian waters. It hasn't been seen there ever since. And now they're regularly being found in northern Tasmania. But you've also uh, become known as Mr. Goblin Shark no. too, haven't you? <laughs> some people call me that, yeah. Yeah, we had a goblin shark uh, caught. We've actually got four or five of these things in our collection here at the Australian Museum. A couple of very large ones or parts of them. They are the spookiest looking fish a lot. Aren't they? I always think of Sigourney Weaver when I look at the yeah. garbage. <laughs> Do you? No. I'm sure she'd be thrilled to no, hear it's that. the teeth. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's the teeth. Yeah. yeah, no, it's the alien. These goblin sharks have the most extraordinary jaw mechanism where they, like in the film Alien, they can actually lower, really, I suppose, protrude the lower jaw. They've got this mouthful of tiny, well, not tiny, very fine fang-like teeth, and they can protrude that lower jaw so that it snaps forward. They've actually got a couple of tendons attached to the top jaw and it, when the jaw is closed retracted the, the tendons are under tension and when the jaw opens it's like a slingshot the jaw gets fired forward so that they can grasp uh, all kinds of organisms whatever it is they're eating out of the soft bottom they live anywhere between about 300 to 900 meters down Right, so that's why we don't see them very often if we're out swimming in the ocean, do we? Thank goodness for that. Thank God it would scare the pants <laughs> off you. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, no, they're pretty cool animals. But we, we get them, occasionally they're caught in trawlers and uh, we're offered them for the museum collection and I absolutely will always take them because we want to know where they occur, we want to know what depths they occur in. As you said earlier, the, the deep sea is just the last frontier and whatever we can find out about is always very exciting and that day the goblin shark came in, I was, I was pretty excited. I remember. Now, one of the great things you get to do here at the museum from time to time is go on a a field expedition to go out into the ocean. And I know you like scuba diving Mm, mm. and you've, I know you've dived all over the South Pacific. Yeah. So where's your favorite spot? If you were just going out for a recreational dive, Mark McGrether, and a day off, a rare day off, where would you go? On my day off? Oh my goodness. You're one day off a year. (laughs) You let me have that, don't you, boss? Yeah. Yeah. to be quite honest, there's some great diving around Sydney. I mean, love, everybody loves diving in coral reef waters, although now, of course, it's perhaps in parts of it not so great. Um, and I've done some fantastic diving, as you said, in lots of places around the South Pacific. Beautiful diving, clear water, beautiful coral, deep, clear water, just fantastic. But Sydney diving is really uh, underrated. Sure, the water's cooler and the water's not quite often as warm, but you can see some fantastic things. And to be quite honest, I'm just as happy going for a snorkel too. You can see lots of wonderful things snorkeling. It's great exercise. You, know, you have to hold your breath. Yeah. And you can still film and see fishes. Yeah, even just Clavelli in southern Sydney. There's the inlet there, the Clavelli Pool as they call it. You can see the blue gropers swimming around. And it's, it's safe, for, safe for the kiddies. You know, it's, yeah. it's, look, it's wonderful. Now, you went on an expedition last year with the Australian Museum to the Comodec Islands, correct? 2011. 2000, was that, oh, it was a few years ago. Yeah, last last, last year, you were, where were you? We were in French Polynesia last French year. French Polynesia last oh. year. God, time flies, doesn't it? 
Oh, so exotic. Last year I was in French Polynesia. So We weren't on the beach under the palm trees. No, I know. <laughs> you're out on a boat and you're really working very hard because yeah. you brought back a lot of specimens yeah. from that expedition, mm. didn't you? Mm-hmm. Indeed. In fact, when you say French Polynesia, you think Bora Bora and Tahiti. We're actually in southern French Polynesia. And the first time I got in the water, I couldn't believe it. It was actually very cold. And people don't equate cold water with, well, not cold water, but cool water. So I actually had to put another layer of wetsuit on. There's algae down there as well as a coral, so that shows you. So, yeah, we brought back quite a few specimens. The collection was done in conjunction with colleagues in New Zealand. And we did, oh, I can't remember how many, 30 or 40 scuba dives in all kinds of different places and got some remarkable um, finds, new records for the area. You mentioned the Kermadex expedition uh, a minute ago, and that was an extraordinary expedition. We... Uh, Kermadex, for those who don't know, is uh, the northernmost uh, islands of New Zealand. In fact, halfway between New Zealand and Tonga. Mm. And we went there. They're, it's, they're volcanic islands. Some of them are just shards, like fangs of teeth pointing up out of the ocean. Extraordinary. And I think we forget that, that there are these undersea volcanoes oh, yeah. with incredibly steep sides, mm. just like finding a mountain under mm, the sea, mm, right? Mm, mm. And diving on those is quite a challenge at times. You jump into the water and the visibility is like crystal clear you can see for ages and you you're like on the side of a mountain and you think well where on earth are we going to collect it's 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 rock and in other places on different parts of these islands you'd dive down to a sandy bottom and there'd be gas bubbles volcanic gas bubbling up through the sand Uh, so yeah really quite extraordinary places so What's been, in your 35 years at the Australian <laughs> Museum, Mark McGruther, what has been your best day here? Oh, my God. <laughs> the day that you really remember when you got so excited by a new specimen being delivered or something Actually, discovered. the day I was... The goblin chuck was pretty exciting. But to be honest, one of the best days I've ever had was the day when I was told I got my job. <laughs> so, That's great. So, in fact, I me went, too. Yeah, yeah. No, it was. It was. I'll always remember that. And I walked into uh, the boss's desk and said, uh, "Do I have a job?" And he looked at me and shook his head and paused. And I went, "I oh, oh, didn't get the job." He said, "Yes, of course you do." I said, "You bastard!" <laughs> <laughs> oh, bosses can be like that from time to time. Yeah, just kidding. No, it's, no it's, a, it's a wonderful place to to work. Oh, well, that's good to hear, Mark. Mm. And uh, I know you've got a really great project too, where you're trying to um, list all of the fish in Australia and get the public to contribute to that. You, can you tell us a bit about that online? What you're doing? Sure. Yeah. Look, I'm I'm collaborating with colleagues, and what what we'd really like to do is put together a new website, a new exciting website. Uh, the name of it's yet to be decided, Ozfish Picks, or perhaps Fish, 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 if you can say that fast three times. Uh, and basically, people would be able to take, they'd be able to get online and query a, a fish by all kinds of parameters. If they were snorkeling down at Jervis Bay and they saw a pink fish with yellow spots at five metres of depth in August, they could put those parameters and see what matches. If they couldn't find anything, they could submit their own photograph and tag it with tags, a whole bunch of tags, it says. And, of course, we have the Lizard Island Research Station up on the Great Barrier Reef where they've put a really great yeah. uh, online website together of fish yeah. spotted around Lizard Island as well. So that would tie in very nicely. That would be cool, yeah. And, in fact, what we, what we have on the Australian Museum's website already is uh, over 1,400 facts about different species in Australia. So that's getting close to a third of the fish species listed. We've got something on our Australian Museum website and that's been a labour of love over many years, often done at night at home because, as you know, there's lots of other things to do here. But uh, 
we get a lot of people referring to that website and saying how useful it is. And uh, yeah, it's very satisfying. To do well, that. it's a great way to experience what the Australian Museum has from the comfort of your uh, living room mm-hmm. at night with your laptop open and going through our extraordinary website and looking at the database there of our collection and and certainly the fish and understanding. I think it's really important that we understand more about the marine environment around Australia. It is so special. It's Absolutely. one of our definite unique elements of how we present ourselves to the world and understanding the marine environment and how it's coping with climate change as well and adapting to it I think is terribly important. Absolutely absolutely it it frightens me greatly to see what's happening worldwide and well it's not a political discussion here so I won't go into that. It's not politics it's science now that we're talking about. It's science but it needs a big solution as well and I think Australia really needs to where we are well, despite what some people might say, we're a wealthy country. I believe we need to stand up and take a moral stand and sort of say, look, we believe this. This is really important. Our science is saying this. Climate change is real. It's going to affect us badly. Uh, You and I will be gone by the time it really kicks in, but for kids and grandkids, uh, it's going to be a shocker. And I think they'll look back at us and sort of say, what the hell were they thinking? Why didn't they do something about it? And I think Australia as a wealthy country needs to stand up, even if we only contribute point five or whatever it is of the CO2 emissions, we need to start to really lead and sort of say, this is how we do something about it. This is the way we can solve the problem and export our technologies at a price. To, spoken, to spoken like a dedicated and passionate man who understands our marine environment perhaps better than anybody. Thank you so much, Mark. Thank you, Kim. That was great. This has been an Australian Museum podcast.